Proverbs chapter 25. Let's begin in verse 13. Like the cold of snow in time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters. Whoever falsely boasts of giving is like clouds and wind without rain. By long forbearance a ruler is persuaded, and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. Have you found honey? Eat only as much as you need, lest you be filled with it and vomit. Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house, lest he become weary of you and hate you. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a club, a sword, and a sharp arrow. Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. Like one who takes away a garment in cold weather and like vinegar on soda is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head and the Lord will reward you. The north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue and angry countenance. It is better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. As cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a far country. A righteous man who falters before the wicked is like a murky spring and a polluted well. It is not good to eat much honey, so to seek one's own glory is not glory. Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Let's pray together. Lord, anytime we come to your word, we recognize how inadequate we are to properly understand it and apprehend it and obey it apart from your grace and your mercy and your help. So we come recognizing that we have great need of you in the study of your word. We're awestruck by it. We love it. We recognize that you have used it to bring us into the maturity uh, that we get to enjoy. And we recognize also the danger of looking at it without applying it to our own lives and hearts. So we pray, Lord, that you would protect us against any self-deception related to it, how we can approach learning it, any misapplying it, Lord, anything that would be not uh, helpful related to our um, growth and our desire to be more Christ-like. We know that your desire for our Christ-likeness is greater than ours. And we're so grateful for your word and how you use it to to bring us into maturity. So help us to not just listen for more information or what we agree with. Help us to listen for what we can obey and how we can repent and make changes, Lord, and have your grace and power help us to live differently. We don't want to look at it and forget what we look like, like a mirror. We want to fully bless your heart by studying it in the way that would bring you glory through our lives. So we commit it to you. We ask that you'd set this time aside for your holy use. We recognize it's a holy time. It really is a supernatural time between us and you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You know, as we continue through Proverbs, I I just 
continuously am in awe of God's word, of just how beautiful, majestic, and perfect, and flawless, and appropriate, and so many other things that it is in our lives. And as it's been said, sin will keep you from this book, and this book will keep you from sin. And it's true. It really does have an effect on us that cleans us and cleanses us. It washes over us and all those things. And and it's easy to forget that God is more blessed than we are that that's happening in our lives. And he just, we can have as much of him as we want, as much revelation of him as we want. He said, I don't call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. So he's linking his intimacy with us with the proportion of revelation that he gives us when he said that. And he gives us so much revelation. And revelation is a privilege. The more you study God's word, the more you recognize how much of a privilege it truly is to know it, to believe it, to build our lives on it. And we can go just out in our lives and going through the things that we need to go through and we can forget just this common working knowledge we have of, of so much that the world is completely ignorant of and has no idea and, and, and who is, they're rudderless and they don't have GPS, a spiritual GPS whatsoever. And we do. And we can have as much of this as we want. It's open to us. You know, no one puts any limitations on how much of God's word we can appropriate and to receive and to um, obey and all those things and he loves it he watches every little bit of our obedience to him and our hunger for him and it blesses him so much that we are hungering and, and and continuing in his word that's why he said and that's why it's kind of our theme verse for his church here is if you continue in my word you're my disciples indeed and it's sad that those things are getting less and less um, focused on in churches and church environments and but that's that's what that's what Paul said when he wrote to Timothy he said preach the word be in be ready in season out of season convince rebuke and exhort with all long suffering and patience for a time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine but they will give provide teachers that will give what their itching ears want to hear and it's true So for us, we're so blessed to be able to go through these things verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept. And we've looked at all this wisdom and all this, this, and some of it you look at it and you read it and you're like, wow, this is not, I mean, I know it's wisdom, but I never would have expected this kind of wisdom. Or to him talk about not overeating honey. You know, what does that mean? Don't overeat honey, as we're going to get to. But all these things that he compares to things that we already know about, we already can relate to overeating things. I don't know about you, but I I can relate to overeating things. (laughs) Okay, I'm the only one. That's fine. Whatever. That's all right. Uh, But, you know, we can relate to those things. So his, it's not just the information that it makes me just go in awe of him. It's how he relates the information and the proportion in which he reveals it. That's why it's so valuable to know this book because especially go through it, studying it like how we do, is that you get the information and the revelation and the proportion in which God has revealed it, which is important because we're not minoring on the minors or majoring on the ma- I mean, we're not doing the opposite. We're not minoring on the majors and majoring on the minors and all those things. And, and so we, we don't get out of balance and over over um, 
look at things in a way that would be disproportionate to how he would have us look at those things. So we've been going in chapter 25. We saw a lot of convicting things in the beginning, the first 13 verses. I don't know, hopefully I wasn't the only one that was convicted. Hopefully you were too as well. But um, in 13 he says, he has this great comparison here, like the snow, like the cold of snow in time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him for he refreshes the soul of his master. So he says, like the cold of snow in time of harvest. Now, most people, most people that have studied this, they're not, they don't believe that the writer that Solomon's talking about, how great it is in Jerusalem when it's harvest time and snow is there somehow, and you're, they're refreshed by this snow. I mean, that could have been the case. Somehow they got snow from somewhere. Uh, you know, I don't know. But it's talking about how refreshing cold is, the, how cold snow is. That kind of cold, whether it's cold water or, or whatever it is, is refreshing in times where you're working hard and it's hot and it's, you know, all those things. Those things are refreshing. But his main point isn't even that. He's saying, he's just comparing that when you have this kind of coldness in a time where it's warm and, and all that, he says, and how much refreshing that is, a faithful messenger that's sent to specific people is, it's refreshing to those people that sent them if they're faithful. So if you're a king, if you're someone in authority, and you send somebody to go relay a message, and they're faithful in, in relaying that message to the people that they're supposed to relay it to, to you that sent that person, because it's very important when you send, many of these messages that they were send, would send would not be just like, hey, I just want you to know I had, you know, Wheaties for breakfast today or something like that. It was very strategic, important information that they would send. And when they would know that this faithful person is going to be delivering this message and they did that, it's just as refreshing as when you're working in the harvest time and something cold is there to refresh you. So for us, it's, it's kind of like a, a message for us related to um, being faithful to communicate the things that we're supposed to communicate, generally speaking. Now that can take many different forms. We can be actually given a... a, a, a task of communicating a message maybe it's our, it's our work or something or in ministry or in family relationships and we're the one that's delivering news and we may not want to deliver all that news in the way that we know we should God calls us to be faithful in delivering those messages and being faithful to the person who sent us to deliver it but there's also other messages that we're called to to communicate namely the gospel we're supposed to be faithful in communicating that because the king of kings has sent us as ambassadors and as messengers. That's what the gospel means. You know, someone that preaches the gospel, an evangelist, is like a heralder. Someone that announces things and, and says, you know, the king's coming and he's announcing that the king is on his way and great news and official capacity of a heralder. We're called to preach that gospel and be faithful to that message. But sometimes the faithfulness related to being honest with the whole truth and nothing but the truth, it could be challenging for us. We don't want to talk about hell to people. We don't want to talk about that they have to repent of their sin. We, we want to be faithful to, the, to, to, to that message. We have to be, tell them the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And, and, and so that takes a fear of the Lord to be able to say, 
Okay, God, you're watching what I say. You're, you're, you're watching how I communicate this gospel. It matters to you how faithful. That's why we've been talking about training and learning how to do it and offering practical training to help you know how to preach the gospel faithfully and appropriately. And, and God's wanting us to be faithful in that and communicate that message and not just communicate it accurately, but be faithful in the sense that I'm consistent. You know, when you're the slightest bit consistent in this world, it, you stand out because the world is so flaky. Just the smallest of keeping your word, following through with something that you said you were going to do, they're just in shock sometimes. Like, who are you? I can't even believe that you actually did the thing that you said that you were going to do. Like, no, that's just being normal like it was 30 years ago, you know, just being normal or whatever, you know, just as a human being. But also, of course, as a believer, you know, we do what we say we're going to do. Not perfectly, but we still do consistently the things that we're supposed to do. Also, you could actually apply it this way as well, related to communicating a message um, to God in intercession. Some people have applied it that way, where you're being a faithful messenger to the Lord, and not that he doesn't know already, but, you know, in terms of intercession, to pray, say that we say we're going to pray for you for this particular thing, that we follow through, we actually do the thing that we say we're going to do, and we're actually going to really pray, and we're really going to intercede for that person before the Lord. So it's just, whenever we're supposed to communicate a message, it's a blessing to those that send us. When we're faithful to the message, we're faithful to how often we're doing it, when we say we're going to do it, and, and how, um, how we give glory to the Lord in the context of it. Verse 14, whoever falsely boasts of giving is like clouds and wind without rain. Now, I don't believe this is primarily speaking of somebody that's giving, but letting everybody know about it. Um, and the reason why I don't believe that is because of what he compares it to. The clouds and the wind without rain. It's talking about something that's not producing, not actually doing the thing that, the, that it should do. When, when winds and clouds come, then it looks like it's supposed to be a storm, there, there's only a benefit when there's rain. I and mean, this is an, a, a farming society here. So when there's a farming society and you're expecting rain, you're expecting this water that comes that is a blessing, um, it's not a blessing when everything happens visually and and you know you're looking at this thing and it's supposed to happen but then it doesn't happen he's saying too whoever falsely boasts of giving is just like that they boast of giving but they're actually not giving you know jesus spoke about us uh following through and giving giving in a biblical way he said don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing to give in secret, to not show off and let everybody see how much you're giving like the Pharisees did and all of that. But I think of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament where they claimed they made it look like they gave more, that they gave everything, but they didn't give everything. And it was hypocrisy because they were making it look like they were better than they were. And because of that, they were smite down. They were, they were you know, taken out. And, and God, that was in the New Testament. That's not the Old Testament, that's the New Testament. They're misrepresenting what they did and they're making it look like they did something greater than what they did and, and he judges them there. So we're, we're not supposed to do that. And so it just kind of speaks of checking our motives. Why do we do what we do? Are we making it appear that we're being generous, but we're not? Are we making it appear that we have these things that, are, that we're doing because <clears throat> they're important to God, that, that we're making it look like we're doing those things, but we're really not? 
Our motivation for what we do has to be checked at all times. Why are we doing these things? Why are we making it look like we're about these things when we're really not? Because God knows. God knows if we're faking it, putting on a show. He knows all those, knows all those things. So whoever falsely boasts of giving is like clouds and wind without rain. Verse 15. By long forbearance, a ruler is persuaded and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. And this, this kind of speaks of approaching authority appropriately. Forbearance means being patient, having self-control, restraint, and, and putting up with things that you normally wouldn't. That's what forbearance means. And so it speaks of not reacting inappropriately when provoked by someone in authority. Because notice he says a ruler there in verse 15. By long, not just any forbearance, long forbearance, a ruler is persuaded and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. So, <coughs> excuse me. So he's called us to have, to not answer, you know, return evil for evil and to a soft answer turns away wrath and all those things. And, and so we're going to, we, we have authorities in our lives, whether they're civil, and he's probably mostly talking about civil authority here. And so when they say things to us that provoke us, there's government offices that really get me upset. There's, there's government entities that drive me crazy. And if I'm in need of something from them, and I'm not talking about compromising the truth or any of those things, but if they're saying things to me that drive me crazy, and I react with my tongue in a way that's not um, full of gentleness, then I'm going to make my situation worse. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exacerbate my situation and make it worse because he talks about pay, by having patience with a ruler and not saying the things that we necessarily just instantly want to say, but having a gentle um, tongue, then there's, it's more likely that they're going to be persuaded in my case and I need them to be persuaded for something that I legitimately need. Verse 16. Have you found honey? Asked Pooh Bear. No, just kidding. Have you found, if I could speak in his voice, I would right now, but I can only do Eeyore, and that probably makes more sense to you. Have you found honey? Eat only as much as you need, lest you be filled with it in vomit. So if you have someone in your house that is just downing all the honey, I mean, you walk into the kitchen and they're just, the little, the little bear-shaped container, you know, and you're, you can bring up this verse and say, have you found honey? Don't you know that if you eat as much as, you should eat as much as you need because you'll be filled with it and you'll vomit. Okay, you won't probably do that. But, you know, this kind of speaks of, and he's going to talk about this again, about not eating too much honey towards the end. But it kind of speaks of a general principle of you don't want too much of a good thing. I mean, the Lord's good, so we, can have, we can't have too much of him. But there are most things in life, and you know, they have a purpose. And if we use them too much... We, we can get too much of a good thing. And so if, you know, if you're a yogi bear, poo bear, you can have too much honey. Uh, but it could be anything that, that's, that's something that it's good, but you can, you know, and I think maybe for us the most applicable thing would be um, food. <laughs> you know, too much of a good thing could be bad for us. Um, but it, it really speaks of self-control and recognizing the proper proportions that God has for us in mind for good things 
Just because they're good doesn't mean we have the, um, the Golden Corral version of it. I remember there was a guy that I knew. He was from um, Switzerland. I may have told you this, but uh, I don't know. Probably not. But I, I remember him saying, you Americans, what is going on with buffets? Why do you guys go to buffets? You, you line up like cattle, you know, and you just stuff yourself to where you can't hardly breathe anymore. And, and, you know, and you pay lots of money for it. And it's not even that good of food. You know, and I got all offended. I was like, what? You know, inside. And then I started thinking about, you know what? He's right. That's exactly what we do. Um, but, you know, we don't need to have the most possible amount of things just because it's good. And, and I kind of think of Hebrews chapter 12 when you think of weights that it talks about. And the writer of the book of Hebrews by the Spirit talks about lay aside the, the weights and the sin that so easily ensnares us and walk with per, or run with perseverance the race that is set before us. So we're all in a race. Our Christian walk is a race. We're not competing against each other. You know, you're not running and going, okay, Tony, okay, am I faster than Tony? Okay, all right, I'm faster than Tony. It's not, it's not a race related to how fast I can go against somebody else. I'm racing against myself, my flesh. And, and, and he says in that passage, nobody, goes, nobody competes for a marathon and tries to find out how much weight they can get away with having. They shed as much weight as they possibly can so they can go faster. And he talks about that. Weights are the things that are Christian liberties. So we can have Christian liberties that are good things, like honey. I have total freedom. I can eat honey. I just learned that I can only eat so much honey. I have limitations on that. But, you know, there's other things that aren't explicitly stated in Scripture saying you can only have a little bit. It's up to the Holy Spirit talking to me to say, this is, this is what you need to have right now for this particular thing. You may like to go play badminton. Maybe your badminton's your sport. And you just, you know, you're overdoing it. You're going and playing like, you know, 12 games a week or something, and you're neglecting other things. Maybe not badminton, okay. I'm trying to bring up random stuff just to uh, see what you'll do. Um, but, you know, you, you, there's things that are good in and of themselves, and we erroneously look at how other believers use those things and the time they spend doing those things, and we automatically transfer that over to us and say, oh, it must be okay for me to do that thing this much as much as so-and-so. And that's not the case at all. With Christian liberties, it's very precise, very specific for our walk and what we're doing, and not just for us personally, but what we're in the middle of, chap- different chapters in our lives. When I became a senior pastor, there's a lot of things that God said, this is not for you anymore. You could do these things where I had you before, but now you may not do those things anymore. I had to stop playing Atari. I had to, no, I'm just kidding. But, you know, there was just things that I couldn't do anymore. I didn't have freedom to do those things. And, and, and there's been other t- pockets of time where, like, okay, this is great that you do this normally, but I want you to cut this out. I want to cut this out because I want to give you more time to what I'm having you focus on now because your ministry's changing things are happening your responsibilities and your family are changing all these things I want you to be taking these things to me and being prayerful and he's faithful to do that sometimes we assume that the weights are supposed to be on autopilot the rest of our lives but our lives change and things change and our priorities need to change based on what he has us in the middle of now maybe he has someone in our lives that it requires a lot of focus in terms of ministry for a season and I need to focus on those things and I need to 
take those things before the Lord. And the, the thing where spiritual abuse comes in is when leaders try to define those things for other believers or when other believers, not even in leadership or anything like that, but try to micromanage those things in our lives and we can't because we don't know their situation or we're not them and it's okay. There's enough things that we need to worry about for ourselves to say nothing of not trying to focus on what other people need to do. So um, I got a lot from not overeating honey, I know that, but it just, (laughs) the principle carries over. We have to take all those things before the Lord, and too much of a good thing can be uh, harmful uh, from it. And he doesn't want us to vomit, which that comforts me. Um, Okay, verse 17. Seldom set set foot in your neighbor's house, lest he become weary of you and hate you. I quote this all the time to Jehovah's Witnesses. No, I don't, but... um, um, they don't listen anyway. Even I tried to quote this out of their own Bible, and they didn't know. I'm, I'm kidding. I didn't do that. But the, the whole thing is, again, this goes back to, and I believe it's related to the previous verse. Again, too much of a good thing isn't good. And they, they can, they, you're a good thing. At least we hope you are. You know, and your neighbor can think, that's too much of a good thing. <laughs> you know, I don't want to vomit here. I'm overdosing. Just like people overdose on honey. I'm overdosing on my neighbor. They're coming over too much and all that. We can out, out, um, wear out your welcome, as it's been said, said, and you can get neighbor fatigue. You're turning out the lights and they're, they're hiding from you and they're, you know, oh no, so-and-so's coming again, you know, and all that. And um, so he says seldom, you know, and seldom, what is seldom? It's seldom is what the Holy Spirit leads you to do and not do. And he gets to define that. The, the principle is you don't want to wear out your welcome and, and, and wear out a, um, a neighbor. Because, again, it's not that you're bad or inappropriate or any of those things. It's just that it's just too much of, too much of you. So that's a good um, encouragement for us. I don't know if some of us are hanging out too much with our neighbors or not. But if you are, there you go. Verse 18. <clears throat> so you never know what you're going to get with Proverbs. It's, um, it's, it's just amazing. Okay, verse 18. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a club, a sword, and a sharp arrow. So that club is like a big stick or a, you know, like a sledgehammer type, type thing. So a man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like that in the terms of how much damage he does, how damaging it is to bear false witness. So you see the progression. You're hanging out at your neighbor's house too much. He gets mad. He starts hating you, and he starts bearing false witness against you. No, I'm not saying it's related necessarily, but um, the idea is we want to be truthful. We want to not misrepresent the facts and all those things. We need to be honest and all those types of, you know, when we have in those situations and everything. So he says we need to be very careful. We don't want to do damage. We can, you know, there's situations where people think I'm actually doing them. I'm helping them in the long run by saying misrepresenting their situation so that a greater good can happen. I've even heard people try to do that before. And like, no, God doesn't need you to be dishonest and deceptive and lying for him to work in this situation with your neighbor. So we need to be honest. Verse 19. Confidence in an unfaithful man in in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. Wow. Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. Now, their, their health care was not exactly pristine 
<laughs> with how their, how their advancements and all of that. I think they knew a lot more than we give them credit for, but compared to what we know now, it's very primitive. And they didn't really have dentists back then, so they were just yanking teeth out and all of that. And, and so everybody could relate in that culture because of the level of care, and everybody eventually is going to have bad teeth and have to have them pulled back then. So everybody knew that. So he's saying just how painful that is, or a foot out of joint. I never dislocated a foot. I didn't even know you could dislocate a, a foot. Um, but, you know, there, he's saying just like how those things are so painful is the same type of pain when you are thinking about somebody that you depend on that should be faithful in, in their interactions with you and how they can help you in times of need. But they're not faithful. They're unfaithful. They're not dependable. We, people can't depend on them. That's just as painful as having a bad tooth that needs to be pulled or a foot out of joint. So that just speaks to us as, the, you know, of, of how we need to be dependable in times of trouble. When things are hard, when things are in crisis, and, and many times those things happen when, to, our, to people that we love in times that doesn't work out well for our lives and our schedule. It doesn't matter. We're called to be sacrificial. We're called to be... Um, putting those things, putting other people ahead of our lives in, in many times. And, and so, especially in the church, I mean, we're supposed, if anybody can be dependent on it, should be us in the church related to our brothers and sisters. We're family. We're, if you don't have believers as, in, as family, we're, you know, we would love to pr- know who they are, their names, pray for them, all those things. Um, but in reality, your family here, you're going to be with us for all eternity. You're stuck with us for all eternity. You know, and so we're, your faithfulness to someone now is going to outlive this life or your, or your lack of faithfulness. And so God's called us to be available, to be sacrificial, and all those things. And I would say, though, too, that, and I, I don't think there's any kind of major problem or us being at risk in this, but just as a reminder, and I remind myself, is that when we put expectations of what other people should do and we're in a crisis, we have to recognize we don't know all the facts related to what they're going through. And sometimes we can assume that everything's good for them. I haven't heard of any major things, but they just, we just don't know about it. So they're going through these major things, and we're assuming that they don't care when they do care. They're just not in a position to do anything because of what they're dealing with that we're not aware of. So I, I would just remind us of that as we need to really find out the situation related to what they're dealing with before we assess whether or not they can be uh, helping us in the way that we would like them to. Verse 20. Like one who takes away a garment in cold weather and like vinegar on soda is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. So in cold winter, someone takes away a garment. Now, for us, it's kind of hard to relate to that in some ways because we have multiple garments in the closet. We many have many, many, many coats. Um, but in that time, if you had one good coat, that, that, that's all you had, basically. And it was, it, 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 you would have to go th- probably a whole winter without having anything to be able to work all year to help get enough money together to have something like that to where next winter you'd be okay. So one who takes away a garment in the cold of winter, or like vinegar on soda. When you put vinegar on, like baking soda, you see a kind of like a negative or agitative reaction. He's saying that's the same type of thing when one sings songs. And it's speaking, I believe, of singing joyful songs. 
which could be appropriate in a joyful context, but someone that has a a heavy heart, what what the Lord prescribes is not a joyful song per se. It's it's an appropriate word or appropriate song for what they're dealing with or something like that. And so it kind of speaks of learning how to be appropriate with people's needs. You know, you may not be the person that's going to be singing a song to anybody. Like, that would make them even way worse no matter what kind of song it was. Um, if I sang a song to you, you wouldn't, you'd be recovering from that. But, um, you know, whatever it is that they need, you're just appropriate. And that takes skill. That takes precision. That takes prayer. It takes listening. It takes perceiving somebody, what their true needs are. And that's why we shouldn't just try to say or do the first thing that comes to our minds. But to, be, to, to, to pause, to think about the situation instead of just reacting. Just reacting in relationships does more harm than good. But being circumspect and, and having time to pray. Many times when I'm in a context with people, you know, I don't know what to do or say. And I'm asking God, you know, please help me. Fill me with the Holy Spirit right now. Refill me right now. Give me a verse. Give me, how can I point them to the Lord? I don't know what to say. And, and so oftentimes while I'm listening to them, I'm already starting to pray. And, and that's so helpful for us as we aim to help one another, to minister to one another, to be listening to the Holy Spirit and to be listening to what he may prompt us to say or do. And sometimes that may be, don't say anything at this moment, but just say, I'm going to pray for you. You know, it could be that. We don't have to have something to say or break out in a song or play the, you know, the spoons or something for somebody. That's probably not going to encourage That is an instrument, just for the record, if you didn't know that. It's, it counts, playing the spoons. Um, so he says, just be appropriate with, with the proper um, uh, song or word or whatever we're going to do, action. Verse 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty... Give him water to drink. Now, Jesus spoke of the same thing, but expanded on it. I want us to hold our place here and turn over to Matthew chapter 5. He went way beyond what this verse says. Matthew chapter 5, I want to begin reading in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And I want to just pause there for a second because he says these action words, love, bless, do good, pray, all those things. Those are proactively trying to do things to benefit or bless somebody else that is your enemy. That takes a supernatural work of the spirit. We don't have that in us to do that. But that's that's what he's called us to do. And and. It doesn't matter if we ever see them have a change of heart. He doesn't say it's conditional. 
Only do it if you think that they're going to, for you know, not be your enemy anymore, or if they're going to receive the gospel or any of those. He doesn't put conditions on this at all. Whether you ever see or I see any kind of fruit or good reaction from that is irrelevant. He still tells us to do it because God sees it. That's the most important thing. God sees every single bit of it. And then notice in verse 45 and following, he links it to who he is. He says that you may be sons of your father in heaven. You, he wants us to be like him. Because, and why? Because he's like this. Let's keep reading. For, and that's a reason word, for or because he makes his son. Where have you seen in scripture that it, he possesses the son? It, it's there in other places, but this is, this is one of those places. His son, he, he, he makes his son rise on the earth, on the evil rather, rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So he tells us to bless those who are our enemies. Now before Christ we're told in scripture that we're enemies of his. That we're sons of wrath, that we're enemies. They're not sons and daughters of his before they come to know Christ. Only when they come to know Christ they're adopted and they're sons and daughters. In fact, he referred to unbelievers as sons of the devil before they came to know Christ. That's the truth about unbelievers, and we need to tell them the whole truth. Not necessarily tell everybody, hey, do you know you're an enemy of God and you're a son? You know, that can, he can lead you to do that, but you know, the, the, the point is we know who we were before Christ because he reveals it to us, and he wants us to be like them, or him rather, and bless them even though they don't deserve it because we didn't deserve it, and we don't deserve it now. He doesn't bless us because we deserve it now. It's all because of his grace anyway. So we have to recognize he wants us to bless them. And we think, well, you know, that's just enabling them or that's just ignoring what they're doing is wicked. No, it's not. It doesn't mean he doesn't say also don't say what they're doing is wicked. He doesn't say also, you know, make them think that you're okay with their behavior. He doesn't say any of that. He just says bless them. People can know you disagree with where they're at. Or what their what their lives are about, they can know you disagree with those positions and still bless them. Hey, I brought you, I brought you lunch today. You know, I, here's a gift card for your son. You told me that he's going to be doing soccer this year, and I got this gift card for, from a sporting goods store. You did? Why would you do that? And they're thinking in their mind, I've been talking bad about you, about your back. I've been trying to get you fired. I've been, you know, all these things, and you're just, you're just blessing them. It's not kissing up to them. It's not any of those things. It's, it's being like our Heavenly Father because He does these things and He wants us to be like us. Verse 46. For if you love those, those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, that's a good searching thing. How much do we greet people that are, are unbelievers? We greet them. And, and, and demonstrate that we care about them and how we talk to them and all these things. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you, what do, you do more than others? See, our whole Christian walk is about doing more than others. It's about serving people. It's about being sacrificial. This world doesn't do that. doesn't know anything about that. Do, do not even the tax collectors do that? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your heavenly Father it just says your Father in heaven is perfect. So even in our greeting, when we greet people, you know, in Israel, when you go to Israel, you see the ascetic Jews, the ultra-conservative Jews, and 
they won't even look at you in the eye. To say nothing of not greeting you, they won't even look at you in the eye because you're just a dirty, rotten Gentile. I had one of them ask me for money at the Western Wall for his wedding. Like, wow, why would you do that? I said, first of all, it's unlawful for you to do that according to what you believe in this religious site. You're not supposed to be asking people for money. And he looked down at the ground and he knew that. And I said, you know, and, and, but I don't, I mean, it's, I don't have, the, I'm not going to give you money, you know, so God bless you, you know, whatever. I'm going to go, go pray. Um, but it, it, it's interesting how they won't even look at you. And we're supposed to greet people that are not just believers and all of that. Now we can turn back to Proverbs 25. He adds there in verse 23, for you will heap coals of fire on his head and the Lord will reward you. So the, it's, if, it's kind of confusing because you can think, well, heaping coals, is, is that whole idea is to try to hurt somebody. So he's saying that that's a good thing, but you're not trying to hurt them, you're trying to bless them. So, it, you know, and so it's a little bit challenging, but he's saying that it, you're, what's appropriate for you to reciprocate is blessing. That's appropriate. And if that's all of the getting even that you're going to do. That's, the, that's all going to be the, the heaping coals on their head that you're going to do. And, and the Lord will reward you. And that's the most important thing because God sees that. It's not wasted. Love is never wasted on anybody. Because God always sees that we're doing it and it always blesses him. So love is never wasted. And he will reward you. And we should care about his rewards. I hear people say, oh, I don't care about being rewarded in heaven. It doesn't matter to me and all that. He says you should care. Because that, in part, is what you're going to use to bless him and throw those crowns at his feet. So we want to be able to have as much reward as possible because he said we should. And that means that he knows that what we're going to want then, that we're going to be wishing we had more rewards potentially because we're going to be thinking back on the lack of rewards, what that represents, that I wasn't faithful or I wasn't, didn't do things in love or whatever it is. He wants us to be concerned about rewards in heaven. It's not selfish. It's not putting ourselves first. It's being a good steward because he wants to bless us with those things. So it's important to him. Verse 23. The north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue and angry countenance. So he's talking about a cause and effect relationship here. Whatever he's talking about in verse 23, it's cause and effect. The north wind brings forth rain. That's just a fact. North wind brings forth rain, and just as that is cause and effect relationship, a backbiting tongue causes an angry countenance. And so backbiting is gossip, it's slander, all those things. We don't have the freedom to talk about people behind their backs. We don't, it doesn't matter if it's true. Sometimes we use that as an excuse or, well, it's true. It doesn't matter if it's true. We're not called to gossip, backbite, slander, all those things, it's going to result in anger. The person about whom we're speaking, he or she are going to be inflamed and, and angry, and it's going to bring forth that um, rage when they find out about it. And worse yet of all, it, the Lord is grieved by it. Verse 24. It is better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than a house shared with a contentious woman. So I'm going to start a 15-part series on this verse. I'm just kidding. No, I say that every time. It's not funny each time. But um, 
Anyway, um, of course, this also applies to husbands. Um, We shouldn't be contentious either. Uh, But I will talk about, just for a second, just with wives and um, what men need. Men need respect. That's why we're told in Scripture, wives are told to respect their husbands. We need women to respect, or women to respect us. I mean, our wives, not just women. (laughs) But our wives to respect us. We need them to feel like they're honored to be married to us. We need them to have confidence in us, that they're rooting for us, that they're encouraging, and they, they're thankful that, that we're leading them. And what's hard is, and we recognize that our shortcomings with those things, in terms of how well we're a leader, because I've been in many counseling appointments where the wife says, as soon as this guy starts doing the right things then I will but and the thing is he never says in any of those verses that God's called a wife to respect her husband is if he's worthy of it or not he just says that that's supposed to happen he doesn't say you're supposed to submit to your husbands if he is makes sense it makes sense in what he's doing or not or whatever now I'm not talking about doing things that are not biblical or him he's asking you to do things that aren't right or you know in terms of the scriptures or the law or any of those things but sometimes what I hear is uh, if I don't lead this is the wife talking if I don't lead and make these decisions and do these things and he's willing to let me do it he has been at least if I don't do these things they're not going to get done and detriment's going to happen things are going to fall through the cracks things if if I don't do it he's not going to do it things are going to crash and burn they're gonna things are gonna happen that you know and so I have to do it and the answer is not for you to do it the things that he's called the the husband to do the answer is for you to let them those things happen and let him see the consequences if I'm not leading oh maybe I should take care of that maybe I should have paid this maybe I should have take you know and all of that and I know it's painful for a wife to see those things happen because sometimes they involve other people that we love but the point is how can a man learn how to lead if he is never given the chance to lead because the wife is doing everything before he can even have a chance to make a mistake. We have to do the right thing. We have to do the right thing as men and lead in all those things to where we don't, the, the wife isn't concerned and isn't even tempted to, to, to lead when, when, when we should be leading. But, but even, I mean, there's a place where Paul talks to the, an unbelieving wife saying, if that unbelieving husband, or a believing wife rather, if that unbelieving husband wants to stay with you, and doesn't want to leave the marriage, you need to stay in that marriage. So God is expecting, even in context of being married to an unbeliever, that you're supposed to walk in those things and walk in submission and all those things. So he can handle those, those situations. He can handle dealing with those things. And I'm not trying to minimize the pain of dealing with somebody that's really hard to walk in submission to. I'm not minimizing that. But generally speaking, we're supposed to be more focused on being godly and doing our biblical roles even with the other person isn't. That's why he says in Ephesians 5, husbands, talks to the husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. He doesn't tell one spouse to get the other spouse to do their role. He speaks right to them. So my biblical role in my marriage is not dependent upon the other person doing their role or not. It depends on my lordship relationship with my God. With him saying, you should be doing this, regardless of what the other person's doing. And then, when you start doing what you're supposed to be doing, 
the whole spotlight, the Holy Spirit spotlight can be on the other person because they have nothing to, to point to anymore except their own behavior. And the Holy Spirit says, they, they made changes. Now what are you going to do? But it's the Holy Spirit saying that to them versus the other spouse badgering them and you know just constantly um, hounding them. So it's true for both spouses. Neither one of us should be contentious, even in any relationship. It doesn't have to apply just to... Um, a, you know, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. There's a reason why he doesn't say a contentious wife. You know, and he shouldn't even have had any more than one wife. Um, but it, it, any relationship, you know, we should not be with contentious, have to deal with contentiousness, and the person should take responsibility and take care of those things. Verse 25. As cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a far country. So the good news for in this context was likely something related to the relationship between Israel and another country and, and some kind of treaty or some kind of um, arrangement for trade or a military agreement, alliance or something like that. That's probably the context that he's talking about. So uh, a weary soul in terms of just your thirst and all that, to have cold water satisfy you, to be a ruler of a nation and hear good news. You know, as a country, I would love to hear good news from North Korea. I'd love to hear that they said, we're not going to go any further with our nuclear weapons program. We're not going to abuse people with all these human rights violations. And of course, I'd love to hear them say, we're going to follow the Lord. I mean, there's so many Christians in South Korea, so many Christians in South Korea would love for a massive revival to, to happen and, and to, to have all these people come to know Christ. So um, obviously we could pray for that. Verse 26, a righteous man who falters before the wicked is like a murky spring and a polluted well. So a spring can get dirty and, a, and polluted, all of those things. They're, it's not good to drink. You, you rely on those things for sustenance and refreshment and, to, and for life, really, because you need those things to survive. That was their only way of getting water many times uh, in that day and age. And he says, a righteous man who falters before the wicked. So this is mainly speaking about character. When you talk about elders and you talk about those that have to have a, 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 a great reputation on the outside. You know, God cares about our reputations. Now, he doesn't call us to chase after our reputations. At all costs, I need to make sure everyone thinks great of me and all these things all the time. As it's been said, we're supposed to take care of our character, and God will take care of our reputation. David let the whole nation of Israel think he was afraid of Saul because he wouldn't kill him, when in reality, he wasn't afraid of him at all. He just wanted to honor the Lord and do what's right. And let God take him out when God chose to take him out. So we're not called to go chase around all, all these things related to our reputation. But God does care about our reputation. There's, just because we're not supposed to uh, you know, over, you know, care too much about those things doesn't mean he doesn't, it's not important. And it is. He just takes care of those things. And so a righteous man who falters before the wicked has bad character. Is, I mean, there's a lot of people that won't do, Christ, won't do businesses with Christian business with Christians because they don't I'm talking about other believers because they can't sue them it's sad that it's gotten that bad they don't want to they know as a believer I can't sue another believer so they they just won't do business with the Christian business or a business that highlights themselves as as a Christian um, organization and it's sad so we need to do the right thing we need to, to be 
have high character before the unbelievers. That's how we're salt and light. That's how people who have that thirst for the Lord will have an, an increased thirst or a greater thirst if they see something different in us and all of that. And so it takes character, and, and he's called us to that. Verse 27, it is not good to eat much honey. Here we go again. Um, so, to, um, so to seek one, one's own glory is not glory. So just like you have someone overeating with honey, it can make them ill and not be productive. So is someone who seeks their own glory. We're not supposed to seek our own glory. We're supposed to seek the Lord's glory. And, you know, we wouldn't probably admit that we're willing to do that and say, you know what, I'm going to seek my own glory, and that's what I'm going to do. But what we'll do is, in situations, we'll arrange things and make changes and, and manipulate situations and circumstances to where we look really good and we look the best out of anybody else. And we could even do that in the name of stewardship. Oh, I just want to be a good steward with everything, and so I'm going to make sure that I look great and everyone else looks bad. It's like, no, it doesn't work that way. We're not supposed to seek glory after ourselves. You know, um, Diotrephes in the New Testament, he, he loved the preeminence. He loved the preeminence, and thus he was put on the shelf when he couldn't be used because he loved to be seen. He loved to be the one that everybody looks to and all those things. And the person that wants attention is usually the most, does the most damage to the, um, God's people. Verse 28. Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. And as we've noted, that walls were protective mechanisms for uh, cities. And so if it didn't have walls, it was totally susceptible and just... A, um, a lame duck or a, whatever you call it, a sitting duck, you know, just there for someone to conquer. And he's saying that's how vulnerable we are when we have no rule over our own spirit. And it speaks of self-control. The one of the fruits of the spirit is self-control. And so we sh- our lives should be marked by self-control. And, and that's very convicting for us. <laughs> uh, and, and at least for me. Because he's called us to have self-control. And so we have to rule over our own spirit. No one else is responsible for that. We're responsible for that. Ultimately, we're the one that's responsible for having self-control and having a spiritual life uh, coming through our lives that can affect others for good. And, and so we have to take responsibility of that. And this is the, this is the, the, the self-deception that happens. Because we think that we're okay. We think that we really do have the equivalent of walls around our lives when we don't have lives that represent self-control. And that's the danger. That's the fallacy. Because God knows we don't have those walls up. God knows we are vulnerable. God knows that we can be taken out very easily. And and so that's that's what we have to guard against, that that self-deception, that my disobedience, my willful disobedience that I'm engaged in or these things that I'm not willing to focus on and all of that somehow aren't going to have an effect. And they are going to have an effect. God says, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And, and so always when you reap something, it's always more than what you planted, whether it's good things or bad things. So we have to recognize that, yes, I'm, I'm out of control with these areas. It's okay. You know, God still loves me. Yes, he does. He has grace for it. Yes, he does. But in reality, if I don't repent of those things and get right, then he's going to allow those things to have their effect in my life. And we're just as vulnerable as walls broken down around a city. All right, let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for 
so much that's in this passage, Lord, and we just, we ask, Lord, that you would take these things and that you would speak to us. Lord, we know you've already been speaking, but Lord, um, we just want to be good stewards of this revelation that you've given us. And we know you could have spoken to us on many different levels, many different things, and we just want to be, um, we want to be, we want to bless you by our reaction, our, a proper biblical reaction to these verses. So we, we thank you for speaking to us in Jesus' name. Amen.